Hey everyone, welcome in. Thanks so much for joining me. Today I'd like to talk about um, meditation in the midst of modern chaos or otherwise <laughs> modern life for a lot of us. I'd also like to offer some reflections on monastic versus householder life for some of you who are practicing uh, the Buddhist path out there. For some of you who are more newer to it or Buddhist curious, also it's totally fine. You'll probably get a lot from this content. So this episode was prompted by a question I received from a student who asked how she could practice the Dharma authentically um, in a householder life with a family. Um, also part of our conversation and part of her question was this wish to become a monastic that she felt it you know, very difficult to practice the Dharma authentically while living as a non-monastic, basically um, someone who has a family or who lives a non-celibate life. And so we went on to have a conversation about this, and I thought um, it might be useful to share it with some of you because this is a question I've heard um, multiple times. And often I get, I get asked this question because I, I guess I, I've had the fortune to, to experience both um, so for some of you who don't know my background, um, when I started out in Buddhism, uh, I started out in my, uh, early twenties, around 20 years old. And, um, I was not a monastic, you know, I was, <laughs> I was a, a young guy, you know, doing my thing, uh, going to music school in Boston, Massachusetts when I met the Dharma. And, um, I had, I had a, a wish and aspiration to become a monastic, but I, w I wasn't at that time. And so for the first seven or eight years, of my uh, Dharma study and practice, um, I did it, you know, not necessarily with a family, but I did it while, while dating and while, you know, working and, and living a non-monastic life. And then um, in 2008, I became a monastic, a Buddhist monastic, um, a novice monk to be precise. And um, I did that for nine years. And then in 2017, I decided to um, return my monastic vows and, and return to a householder life, um, now having a family and, and, a, and, a, and a daughter and a partner. And so, you know, in a sense, um, I've gotten to experience both. And that doesn't mean what, what, what I've experienced is the common experience or it's what other people experience. It's just an experience <laughs> and something to share from. So, you know, the short answer for this question, can we practice the Dharma authentically as a householder is yes, of course, like there's no issue there. Um, in fact, some forms of Buddhism thrive more um, within the householder life. So, for instance, Vajrayana Buddhism, some would argue, is somewhat built more for householder practitioners. I would, I would say it's built for both, um, but some would argue it's built a little bit more because you know, in monastic life, we have certain restrictions. You know, we don't have a family. Um, we we do keep celibacy. Um, you know, there's a lot of limitations in order to serve the practice. Um, where in some forms of Buddhism and Vajrayana Buddhism, they're predicated on working with activities that will actually inflame the afflictive emotions a little bit more, so we can work with them. You know, in that intensity. So this is kind of giving a little bit of a hint at uh, some of what I wanted to share today, which is that within householder life, it's not that we're doing something different. It's not that we need to ignore what monastics practice and do something else. It's that we need to do what monastics are doing uh, on an inner level 
well working with the complexity of a householder life, right? Meaning, you know, we still need to work with our afflictive emotions and we need to develop um, a type of weariness or exhaustion with the status quo of our samsaric predicament, for, for some of you who know what I mean by that. Um, and you know, we need to develop that well amidst the things, uh, the activities, the relationships that often inflame, you know, our afflictive emotions. And what do I mean by afflictive emotions? Our aversion. Um, our attachment and clinging, um, yeah, our confusion, etc. So, so this is where I, I would say householder life is more challenging in practicing the Dharma in some ways, but it can have a lot of fruit for that reason. But also monastic life equally can be uh, incredibly fruitful. Uh, it, it provides the time and space to work with the Buddha Dharma um, in, a, in a more uh, direct, deliberate way. I mean, just like anything we do in our life, um, to reach a, a kind of expertise with something takes time, no matter what it is. And so when you lead a monastic life, you, you have time. You have time to study. You have time to engage in meditation retreats. Um, you have the monastic vows themselves as a protection Right to to work with the mind as a boundary to work with um, afflictive emotion. So it's just different styles. So I think of monasticism fondly, and I benefited a lot from my time uh, being a Buddhist monastic. But I also think of it as a way um, that provides, how do you say it, like a foundation for going deeper. And so I think that's one of the challenges for householder practitioners or non-monastic practitioners is, is we have to find a way to go deeper initially and to really connect to the foundations of the Dharma, you know, without holding the monastic vows and, and working in that lifestyle, which uh, for a lot of people can become really challenging. And, and therefore, that's where monasticism um, thrives. You know, I think that's what it exists for, because it's a, it's a way that has proved to be successful for many, many practitioners uh, since the time of the Buddha, over 2,600 years. So um, I hope this is painting a little bit of a wider picture because it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not like monasticism is better or being a non-monastic householder practitioner is better. Um, there's just different pro proclivities of people. Um, like I said, for me, uh, I found both to be really useful. I, 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 would, I, would, not, I would not trade any day, you know, <laughs> with anyone, the time I got to uh, work with uh, monastic lifestyle, monastic vows, um, that was incredibly beneficial. There's, there's no doubt about it in my mind. There's no regret there. There's no, um, like, resentment or idea that I'm doing something higher or lower now. It's just, for me, it's just part of the stream of this life um, that I've gotten to work with. But similarly, I also appreciate my householder life, and I appreciate being able to integrate the Dharma into it. But I don't know. It's, it's different for everyone. For me, I don't know. I, I, I often reflect on this as like, would I be able to integrate it without having some monastic training and time to deepen and retreat and stuff like that? For me personally, probably not. Um, that time really served as a way to mm, deepen enough uh, that then, you know, I'm not saying it's easy now, but it, it's like there's something to integrate. You know, there's some understanding of the Dharma to integrate. Um, 
So that's really helpful. So I think that is the hill to climb as a householder, um, you know, who hasn't done any monastic training is we still need to learn the Dharma. We still need to um, reflect on it and we still need to meditate and apply it. It's just we need to use our life circumstances to do that. And that's where it can get, I think, really creative, right? Because if we understand the core essence of the Dharma here, if we understand the core meaning of, you know, bringing our meditation practice into modern life and working with the chaos of modern life, you know, we also have to recognize the chaos isn't outside of us, it's often inside of us. And so, with that knowledge, we recognize the work is internal, you know, and for a householder practitioner or a non-monastic practitioner, that means the work is in relation to all the things happening in our life, that our families, our friends, our coworkers, the communities around us, uh, they become our teachers, you know, they become uh, the ones pointing out um, the Dharma, they become our path in a way to train. But as I said, we have to be clear what we're training. So I'd like to say a little bit about that. And there's a lot of ways to talk about this, but I want to uh, pull from the Lojong Mahayana teachings, which is mainly working with um, recognizing self-absorption and self-preoccupation, or sometimes I call it the small self, um, recognizing that as, as more or less the root of our problems, the root of our pain. Because when we become very self-preoccupied, when we become self-absorbed, um, we're always thinking of our own needs. We're always worried that something is going to come into our field of existence that's going to harm us. Uh, we're, we're always looking for some avenue to get more, uh, more pleasure, more wealth, uh, more comfort, um, we're always looking for safety, you know, to, to not uh, come into contact with the things that, that cause us pain. And we can see, we can waste a lot of time with that. If we really look at our own life and we really bring this into reflection honestly, uh, we can see it's really at the root of our suffering is self-preoccupation. And so when we, when we make that the root, when we understand that uh, as the root problem, uh, then we can see in a householder life, I would, I would argue in a monastic life too, but let's just stick with our theme right now. In a householder life, we have so much opportunity. I mean, raising kids, you know, it's such a powerful means to letting go of our own self-interest, right? I mean, we, we were almost forced to because the, you know, our child, depending on what age they are, they just require so much. Um, they, they're, they're unable to care for themselves. They're completely dependent on us. And so, that more selfless, uh, altruistic nature that we also have as part of our mind can come out more. So it's not like our self-absorption is, is our nature of mind. It's not. It's actually um, a misperception, a falsehood in a way. And so when we work with it, when we work to remove it, our Buddha nature, our awakened nature, our altruistic, caring, loving, kindness nature can come out more. And so we just have to use our life as the path, you know, our work as a way to give, to offer, to benefit people. Um, our, like I said, our, our family life is another way to benefit, but also as a way to um, root out our own self-cherishing mind or self-preoccupation. And so 
in householder life, there's just so many opportunities to do that. I think it's rich with that. And so if we take that approach, it's not that we need to leave the world in order to wake up. It's that we need to leave the world of self-preoccupation and self-cherishing in order to wake up. And then ultimately, in the wisdom teachings of Buddhism, we would see, you know, that's one side of the, the coin, this self-cherishing or self-absorption. But really, on the other side, it's that, you know, the way self actually exists is is not in alignment with how a lot of us perceive it. Because, you know, even when we ask the question, where and what is self? You know, look for it. You know, where do you exist? What are you? We can't even answer that question, right? We could say, oh, here. But what does here mean? You mean in the skin, in the breastplate? you know, in, in the blood. So in the wisdom teachings of Buddhism, we ask these kinds of questions to open up the false reality, the false God of self. And it's not that we don't exist. Otherwise, you know, who would be listening to this? Who would be talking, right, in this episode? So it's not that we don't exist, but Buddhism puts forth we don't exist in the way that appears, it's, 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 there's a kind of illusion or misperception happening. So whether we hit it from the perspective of, oh, and this is the cause of our suffering also. <laughs> so whether we hit it from the side of self-preoccupation and self-absorption or this, this false perception or misperception of self, they're doing the same thing, essentially. Because part of that, when we're able to root out um, the misperception of self, what's left? A nothingness? No, that's not what Buddhism says. What's left is open relational compassion. That's what's left, right? Because we see others struggling, and then we respond because we're not struggling anymore. Once someone who's really seen through the illusion of self, and I would say the illusion of their own, you know, self-cherishing mind, and that you know that is something to base our life off of. Once they've cleared that to a certain degree. They're able to open. They're able to open to others more, uh, to give more. And that's just like a natural expression. So householder life offers a lot for that. And I would say monastic life too. It's just monastic life focuses more on, on leaving some of the worldly concerns aside. So there's just less, less obstacles in the way. And so that is a challenge we need to acknowledge as householder practitioners that, you know, um, there's a reason there's monastic life and monastic vows and practice. It's because it's really, really hard to work with the objects within life that normally inflame our afflictive emotions. It's really hard to work with them, you know, while we're in them, right? It's like being in, you know, we're trying to dry off, but we're in water. And so it takes extra care. It takes extra practice. It takes... Um, you know, a little bit more weariness with uh, samsaric mind. And when we're growing that weariness, we're not leaving our life. We're growing the weariness while we're in the life. And so we dedicate more to um, altruism, compassion, you know, uh, engaging with others, helping others. So that's really the way, I think, for householders in the Mahayana path. We emphasize the Mahayana motivation a little bit more, which is exchanging oneself and others, transforming our relationship uh, to self-importance and that we are, you know, the center of the universe. And so I think householder life offers a lot of opportunity for that. So that's mostly what I wanted to share today. Um, there's one 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 more thing I'll share briefly, which is, um, you know, as we're doing this, the challenge is that 
you know, we're not abandoning complex complexity on the outside. So um, Sony Rinpoche, one of my teachers, he often says, you know, what we need to attempt as a modern meditator in the midst of chaos, that I'm paraphrasing that part, but he often says we need to um, find simplicity on the inside while there's complexity on the outside. So for a monastic practitioner, they're working with simplicity on the outside. You know, they've given up a lot of worldly concerns, job, romantic life, etc. And their life is very simple or, or more simple on the outside. Well, they're developing simplicity on the inside. So they're using simplicity on the outside to develop inner simplicity. For a householder, we don't have that choice. We have families, jobs, you know, all kinds of concerns. So there's a lot of complexity on the outside. But we still need to focus on developing inner simplicity. So I like that. So he often encourages us, don't abandon the complexity, grow the inner simplicity, right? And, and so what we're talking about in a way is an inner simplicity based on mindful awareness, based on ethics, you know, based on connecting into clearly seeing how our afflictive emotions bend and, you know, twist and project reality in a, in a distorted way. Based on all of that, um, we can cut through some of our confusion. You know, we can cut through uh, delusion um, to find more clear seeing and based on working with um, how we sometimes get caught in, in a lot of self-absorption and instead challenging ourselves to open to compassion towards others, to active service, we can transform. So I'll leave you with that, just the sense of, you know, we don't need to abandon complexity. We just need to understand the Dharma enough and practice enough to develop inner simplicity. Okay. Thanks so much. I'd love to hear your thoughts. For those of you out there, I'd love to hear um, how you're working with this in your life. If you're watching on YouTube, please comment. Um, let me know um, your thoughts. If you're listening on Spotify or iTunes, feel free to reach out to me at scotttusa.com. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks so much.